sense in presence as it was in the days of Isaiah when the glory cloud filled the house so that the priests weren't able to minister. Oh Lord, give us a sense of the God with whom we have to do. Might we be on that mount of transfiguration today, Lord, and see no man save Jesus only and your face which did shine as the sun. Bless our servant this morning, Lord. Just pray that your word would would speak to every heart from the oldest to the youngest here that everyone might, might not just be affected but in some way changed and sanctified, meet for the master's use. We just ask it all, Lord Jesus, thanking thee for thy precious blood that has made us fit. We thank you, Lord. Could you turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes? And while you're doing that, uh, there's really no announcements other than what's in the bulletin, so unless someone else has one to add, this is your opportunity. If not, we'll proceed. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, where we left off last week. And before we uh, comment on that, I want to just add a little something to what our brother said before that's kind of mind-blowing, mentioned about how God names every star, just to give you a sense of how many stars there are. I don't know if you ever looked into this, but uh, we're in a galaxy, right, called the Milky Way. Um, do you realize how many stars there are in our galaxy? One billion, approximately. Do you realize that our galaxy is one of many more galaxies that in our, the size of our galaxy is average for many other galaxies. Now just think of it, there's a billion stars in our galaxy and do you know how many galaxies there are? Now this is scientific, okay? Two trillion. If that doesn't Knock your socks off, I don't know what will. To me, it just makes God so great that my little mind cannot comprehend that. I'm just thinking of our own galaxy, let alone galaxies, in the amount of stars that are in all those galaxies, brother. Can you imagine God naming all of them? Go ahead. Well, how great is our God? Amen to that. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to read it verse 4. I'm reading in the English Standard Version, which should be behind my head. Hope we can have those verses up. If not, uh, just follow along. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness 
than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again I saw vanity or meaninglessness under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling in depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappiness, an unhappy business. Verse 9. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly or easily broken. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. David Gibson calls the book of Ecclesiastes the strangest of Old Testament books. It's strange, you must admit it, as you read the book of Proverbs and Song of Solomon and all the other poetic books of the Bible and all the books for that matter. Ecclesiastes strikes you as strange. As we've said over and over again, it has to do with the author, the preacher, that's what the word means in the beginning, the preacher is writing from the vantage point of things under the sun. Some things we can say amen to, other things we have to be a little more... uh, inquisitive as to what is the author getting at. And we'll find that as an example here. And again, the author begins in verse 4 saying, Then I saw. That word saw could be translated, maybe in your translation might translate, I observed. It's a wonderful thing to be an observing person. And we have to commend the preacher, who very well be Solomon. We're not going to be dogmatic about that. But we see that... Um, uh, One more slide, the second one. Picture of someone who's trying to observe. There it is. I hope all of us are observant and take note of things in your lifetime. Do you think you're smarter today than you were five years ago? Are you smarter today than you were 20 years ago? Do you think you'll be smarter in five years from now or 10 years from now? And I don't mean smart intelligence-wise. I mean, are you more aware? Are you more knowledgeable? Have you grown in your wisdom? That's a key, growing in wisdom and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But taking notice of things around you. It's so easy to be over-occupied with just temporal things and just live a day at a time, as they say, and have no plans for the future. Yesterday I had I sat with somebody at the uh, methadone clinic who has no drug problem but only alcohol problem which is a problem in itself of a magnitude of who knows how high. Well, anyway, he asked if he could sit and talk with me. And I I said, absolutely. His name happened to be Isaiah. I said, wonderful name, right out of the King James Version, the alternate name for Isaiah, or the way the old English would pronounce Isaiah. And he shared with me what's going on in his life. And he said that he had gone to a church, and he said that... um, after having gone to the church out of the clear blue, he had no idea that the pastor happened to call him and wanted to meet with him. So they got together and I said, what did the pastor share with you? And he said, 
he said to me, after knowing my alcohol problem, and he's only 35 years old, good-looking guy, well-built, uh, seemed like he had it together except for this problem. He, he had told the young man, he said, what you're lacking in your life is vision. Vision. And I went back to that in the course of time and talking to him. I said, you know, the scripture does say, where there is no vision, the people perish. In other words, if you don't take knowledge of where you're going, what your goal is, what is your life all about, what is your purpose here in this world, you're probably going to have a meaningless life. I hope that each and every one of us want to have an enriched and meaningful, purposeful life. And we know that the ultimate way in doing that is to set Christ high on our scale of pursuit. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul says, of the Lord Jesus, of Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. This preacher is writing about things from the vantage point of under the sun. When the Apostle Paul went to Thessalonica, what was it? Yeah, Thessalonica it was, and it says that the accusation they were making about him was that this man is coming telling us about another king and he's turning the world upside down. Can you imagine that accusation? And that accusation in a way can be made to all who are non-worldly thinking, Christ-exalting, Christ-loving people. We don't live and think and act like the world because we have another king. It's not the Caesars of this life, but it's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They were bringing the message, Paul and the apostles, a message that was criticized as being one that would turn the world upside down. In a way, we're turning really the world, the world of believers, right side up. When we were born and when we lived without Christ, ah, we were living in an upside-down world. But praise God that it's been turned the right way by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I challenge each and every one of us to ask ourselves, how observant are we in our lives? I saw, I saw, I saw. That's what the preacher is saying over and over again. And if you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, one thing at least you have to commend them for is for his perception, his search, as he says in the first chapter, I'll repeat it again. I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all things that are done under heaven. This sword travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therein. So God has given that desire or interest for all mankind that we should be seeking the things that are all around us. So we need to look around. We need to take notice. We need to watch and see. Are you learning? Are you perceptive? Let's take heed to the challenge and follow the preacher. I saw, I observed, all toil and skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Envy of his neighbor, this also is vanity and striving after wind. What is he saying? That people take a look at another person or something else and out of envy for it, it motivates them to do something like what they're envious of. 
And I can say that practically. As I look at my neighbor's lawn across the street, it's so green, it's flourishing. It's, and then I take a look at my yard. I said, man, i got some work to do here. It generates, this is a positive, you could say, side of envy. Of course, there's a negative side of envy that the Bible's filled up with. Rivalry is created from jealousy. Uh, it's... Uh, um, it can be, yes, this negative thing. Envy rots the bones, Proverbs 14, verse 30 says. Jealousy results from um, covetousness. It's a violation of Exodus 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods, right? But yet in the context here, I have a sense that the author, and commentators would agree with this, that the author is actually just taking observation, noticing that people who look at people are learning something from them and it's creating with them a desire to sort of follow the same example of them. Though it's generated by envy, which is a negative term, it still can produce something positive. When I was a young believer, I would basically get up, and I'm not trying to make anything of this, but just to give you an example, I would probably read about 45 minutes before I went to work, half an hour, 45. I had to be to work uh, at the 9 o'clock. So I got up at about 8, 8.15. I read for 45 minutes and then headed off to work, which was just a 15-minute ride. And then... uh, as things progressed in the company, my hours were changed and I had to be at work for 7 o'clock in the morning. And what came to my mind was, oh, 7, that's early in the morning. I'm only 23 years old. I mean, you know, at that age, everybody kind of sleeps till you know how it goes. So 7 o'clock, that was scary. And I said, but I got to get my Bible study in. Well, praise the Lord, just about that time, there was a brother in the local church, well, a, a, a sister church, I could say, that I heard about. He was about my age, and he had to be to work at 5 in the morning. And to, I was told, I don't remember, he told me or it was told me that he got up at 3 o'clock in the morning to read his Bible for an hour and a half and then would take off to go to work. Well, guess what? I was envious of that. I was convicted by that, actually. So I made a con- I, I had a conviction that I'm going to do the same thing. So I set my alarm for 5 o'clock in the morning, and I read to like 6.30, quarter to 7, and then headed off to work. So I'm just trying to give you some examples where we can prosper by sometimes watching somebody who's maybe a little ahead of me, or someone that's doing something that I wish I could do as well, that, that God can use to motivate you. But he said, even this is a striving after the wind. Because the preacher sees no ultimate value in things that are done on earth in earthly ways. He goes on to say in verse 5, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is, sounds like cannibalism, of course. This is obviously a very exaggerated statement. It has to do really with slothfulness. It tells us in Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. If you don't work, it says in Thessalonians, if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. The last thing that should be classifying us would be laziness. Now, my wife's going to uh, probably say, hey, you're a hypocrite using that language. Because sometimes it looks that way, and maybe I could use a little uh, 
take that reproof a little bit. But laziness is not something that should mock a Christian. Um, that's why we were re- heard reading in the book of Proverbs, Go to the ant, you sluggard. What does an ant do? It's constantly doing something, constantly working. And we should have that kind of zeal. George Whitfield say, said as he was getting older and he was being uh, challenged by people and said, George, you need to take it easy. You're preaching three days a week. You're up at five in the morning and you're preaching even till one o'clock at night some days. George Whitfield says, I would rather what burn out rather than rust out. So let's burn that candle of spiritual energy as much as possible for the things of the Lord. Rather than taking a back seat and say, well, I'm retired now, and now I'm going to relax. There's no, there's no retirement for a Christian. I can understand retirement from secular employment or retirement from whatever job you may have of some kind, but to retire from the things of God, that's not on the... On the scale, that that's not doesn't register at all. Proverbs says, "Love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty." Again, the tendency to get lazy is something that all kinds of bites us. Verse six says, "Better is a handful with quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind." Uh, this is what you could say, the opposite. This is a workaholic. Okay. Uh, not satisfied with what he has, but wants to add more and more and more. And this is probably for financial material gain, would put every effort possible into acquiring it. And when I was in the workforce, I used to see that uh, some of the uh, foreigners that would come over and open up the convenience stores. They would be there literally from the store opening to closing. And some of them, and they were my customers, some of them would actually sleep in their stores so that when it opened up at 6 in the morning they would be right there to accumulate money to to add to their income um, as Christians we're warned about the possibility of being manic over being busy most people think you have to accumulate X amount of material things to satisfy yourself that's subtly in the back of our minds the more we have the happier we're going to be that's not the case. Someone put it this way and said, we should, to bring, we should try to bring our level of satisfaction down to the level of our possessions rather than try to raise the level of our possessions to meet our satisfaction level. You follow me on that? Don't make your expectation try to be so high that you want to bring your possession level up to to think that's where I'll be satisfied, but rather drop your satisfaction level down to the level of where your possessions are, really practically speaking. G.K. Chesterton says there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more, and the other is to desire less. One is to accumulate more and more. The other one is simply to desire less. It says in Hebrews 13.5, Be content with such things as you have. Are you content with what you have? The idea of more and more and more. I mean, the world would keep feeding you and it's endless. But for a believer, we should be satisfied with the things that we have. What things? In First Timothy 4 and 8, it says, Having food and drink, let us be therewith content. 
contentment with what we have. Riches is not going to make you happy. Poverty, not, I'm not advising is going to make you happy. But whatever your scale of economy is, be satisfied. Be satisfied. Going on to verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. One person who has no other, no son, no brother, no end to all of his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling in depriving myself of pleasure? This also is meaningless and unhappy business. Again, the contemplation of the observing preacher brings these things really to a head and helps us actualize what, as we observe ourselves, don't we come to sometimes the same sort of conclusion when we see that it it's really meaningless? Which challenges us, if we think about our life and the things that we do in our lifetime, we could almost put on one side things that are meaningful and on the other side things that are meaningless. And I know that's not easy to do with every category of thing that we do in our world. I mean, a vacation, you could say that, what category does that fit in? Well, generally speaking, depends where you go, of course, and what you're going to do. But in general, it is important, I think, that we seek to find a meaningfulness in our life. Can we find, and this is sort of in the background of the mind of the preacher, can we find meaningfulness in our lives in a life that's meaningless? You could say, in a way, that's sort of the theme of the author of the book. Now I want to move on to where I would like to spend the rest of my time because I think this is very important for all of us. And that's verse 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, warm, but how can one be warm alone? Verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In some way, this could simply be referring to the need to have extra bodies with you in your travels. Piracy, thieves were rampant back then, like they are today. But it was dangerous to travel alone. It was unadvisable to travel alone. You could very easily be mugged and jumped. So it's far better to have a second person, one that can take the wheel while the other one's trying to fight off the the, uh, offender coming upon them. But it's a general truth that two are better than one. One can't be warm alone. We are not expected to be alone. So he moved from being from a lonely miser. Now he's exhorting to have company. This is a positive exhortation, indisputably a very positive thing. At times, as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, we can kind of scratch our head and say, "Hmm, 
That's not exactly the wisdom above the sun, but it is from below the sun. This Absolutely a very direct positive statement that is worthy of being heeded to. Not being alone. When God created Adam, he says it's not good for man to be alone, period. Not even only, he, he did have animal creation around him. That was something that he needed as well. But he needed another person. Another person. Of course it is for the sake of replenishing or uh, uh, for the... Expansion of the of the earth, we know that, but I think it's a good generic statement that it's not good to be alone. We're created with a need of companionship. That's the norm. Proverbs eighteen one says, "He that separates or isolates himself seeks his own pleasure. He is vehement against all sound wisdom. Individualism is a killer." By individual, I'm not talking about conforming or non-conforming. I'm talking about isolationism. Isolationism is wrong for a believer. And it's very easy for us to retreat into our little cubby holes and to get away from society, from people, and even from fellow believers and maybe family members as well. Don't be a hermit. Don't live in solitude but rather live in solidarity with fellow people, fellow believers particularly. One is the loneliest number. Remember that song? One is the loneliest number? And that's true. Two is better than one. And a threefold or three, yeah, three-stranded cord is a lot stronger than even two. Simon and Garfunkel had a song, I think it was back in the late 60s, early 70s, titled, I Am a Rock. I've built walls, they sang, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. I have my books and poetry to protect me. I am shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one, and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. A hundred percent wrong. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Can you say amen? Lead me to the rock that's higher than I. I can't do it on my own. I don't trust myself. I could fall like anybody else could fall. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That's an advantage of having others in your life because if you fall, the other one is there to pick you up. And I hope you have a brother or sister who's there that you can confide in, that you can trust, who will pick you up when you're ready to fall or have fallen. A brother should be born for adversity. There should be no one that should fall in your life that you that is not worthy of you trying to rescue them and restore them, and go after them. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself also, lest thou also be tempted. 
Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he that converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. James 5, 19 and 20. That's what we can be to one another. That's who you and I need in our life. Someone to rescue me. Someone to uphold me. Someone to be there when I fall or there for them for when they fall. Two is better than one. And again, back in the 70s, Life magazine, I believe it was a cover story. I don't, I'm not sure I, I heard it. But the way they would test astronauts, and as you know, the uh, uh, outer space uh, programs was off the charts. It was Kennedy got them launched, and they were, they were up in space all the time, it seemed like. So astronauts had to be very well trained for an experience that they wouldn't experience normally on Earth. And one of the concerns would be for an astronaut if he was, quote, lost in space. Meaning, being alone. Some rockets were one person manned, or if it was more manned than that, they could very easily be separated if some catastrophe had occurred. So in preparing astronauts for the possibility of being alone, they had come up with this idea of drilling into the into the earth and having a cave-like place hundreds of feet underground. Total, total blackness. The astronaut was placed there and had to remain there for days on end with, with food to sustain him, but nothing else. No communications. Wasn't able to hear anything wasn't able to talk to anybody, no voices at all. Well, in one of the early astronauts being tested, he was down there for, I can't remember the days, I want to say 77, but that sounds impossible. Uh, It it probably was more like 7 or 10 days. He was down there, and he was so, so lonely that he happened to hear a rodent moving in the in the on the ground and he was so desirous for some kind of contact with something something living that he was actually trying to catch a rat or rodent of some kind that's how desirous that god created desire for companionship is deep within us we need people wasn't it Barbara Streisand that sang, sang the song, People Who Need People Are the Luckiest People in the World? So if you're someone that thinks, I can do it alone, I don't need anybody. Hermit life is not biblical life. And yet we find ourselves sometimes getting like that. Because maybe I don't fit in, or people don't like me, or I don't like people or I have my own thoughts and I can't share them with people because they'll think I'm goofy, whatever it may be the case. God created you for companionship. Matthew Henry says, next to the comfort of communion with God, next is the communion of saints. Communion with fellow believers. And I hope the communion of fellow believers is something that really boosts your soul. Something that invigorates you. Something that charges you spiritually. I can tolerate, and we should all be tolerant, of course, towards the world. We were once in it. 
I have to remind myself, as it says, I always think, think of this verse in the book of Exodus, and God tells the children of Israel, remember that you were once bondmen in Egypt. And I have to remember that. Remember what you were like when you weren't saved? Think of that. So don't look down so easily upon the unconverted. Dealing with the drug addicts, the alcoholics, the whatever kinds of people that are out there. If it weren't for the grace of God, right? They say, so go I. Absolutely. We're on the same level in a, in a way. We can relate to them, but they can't relate to us. But we can at least relate to them and we need to communicate the gospel to them. The Bible, it, it, they're too numerous to mention all the one anotherings of the Bible. Comfort one another. Exhort one another. Edify one another. One another, one another, one another. You have to have another in your life. And not just your wife or your husband. That's great and wonderful to have that companionship with, with your spouse, especially if they're a believer. That's wonderful. That's a desirable thing, of course. But do not have anybody is serious. Remember Jesus said, let's see if we can get this slide up next one. Uh, one more, there we go. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. You know why Jesus says that? Because in verse 18 he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you alone. To be left alone is a very depressing thing. You might deceive yourself in thinking that you're happy in your loneliness, but you're really missing out on the important things of life and to enjoy life in general. I do not leave you as orphans. And notice the we we will come to them and make our home. There's the Trinity in action, the Father, the Son, and we know the Holy Spirit is the other comforter that He sends. That's a great thing to have that divine presence within you. God dwells in you. But I want you to, before we hit that point, I want you to look at this verse because I want you to... um realize a very important thing about being saved. Um, We often emphasize the individuality of being converted. I got saved. I have my sins forgiven. I'm going to heaven. I, I, I. But wait a minute. Look at this verse. There we go. Hebrews chapter 12, 22 to 4. And you have come to Mount Zion... Okay, this is talking about our salvation experience. This is what we've been brought to. Mount Zion, and I'd like to comment on all of these, but I'm going to emphasize a few. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels. You ever think of that, that you've been brought to innumerable angels? Right now. This is not something future in heaven or in glory, but at the present time, you have by salvation come to innumerable myriads upon myriads of myriads of angels we have brought been brought to. You're not alone. You're not alone. What else? In festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Hmm. Now that is a church. Those are believers. Those are God's people. The assembly of the firstborn. I'm not going to dissect that too much. But that's a high point that I want to 
drill in our minds is that when you were converted, you were brought into a family. You were brought into the kingdom. You were brought into association with fellow believers, men and women of God who have a relationship and a faith like your own. There's no individuality. And to God, praise the Lord for that. And the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's probably referencing our relationship, and of course it's not communal like it would be on earth, but our association with those that have departed. I think the spirits of the righteous made perfect are referring to those who's, who have died in their spirits are with the Lord now. You could debate that with me. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews twelve twenty two to 24. That's what we have been brought into. You didn't know that when you got converted. You didn't realize you were going to be joining a divine family on earth that's bigger than your local church, that's bigger than the Christians of America or Canada, around the world. That's who we have been called to gather with. And we are gathered with all of those saints. So you're calling, though it's individual... Your conversion puts you into a plural placement. That's what that's about. And also, again, hitting on this verse about two is better than one. If one falls, one can hold him up. Woe to the one who's alone and doesn't have someone to lift him up. If, if two, two can't be warm, I mean, one can't be warm alone, they have to have another. If two lie together, they keep warm, but one can't keep warm alone. Though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's a verse that's commonly used in a, in a wedding. I've used it many times. And even in premarital counseling, I'll have one tomorrow morning as a matter of fact, I want to emphasize the fact that there are three that are involved in your marriage, not just you and your future spouse, who's the third one. We all know this, right? The Lord. The Lord is the third of the cords in the relationship and the strongest of them all, all right? He's the one that's going to keep the relationship strong and firm. Someone said that a good marriage is made up of one spouse who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, the other spouse who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and nothing in between them. So if one loves the Lord and the other one loves the Lord, that's going to be an awesome household. That's a good marriage. Two is better than one, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. It's great to have communion with God. When Jesus rose from the dead and met with his disciples, again, there's this concern. Remember, uh, Mary wanted to embrace him. She tried to hug him, as it were, and Jesus says, Back off. I've not yet risen. Don't touch me now. Don't grasp me. Don't hold me down. I've got to go away. See, that that's the earthly mind minded person. Got to have Jesus physically with me. Again, there's a desire for that companionship, and of course the greatest of all. But Jesus, again, has to repeat that I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to go to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. And amazingly, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.16, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people, saith the Lord Almighty. 
and you will be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So God's personal presence in the life of the believer is a great companionship to have that comfort and communion with God Almighty. What a divine power, what a divine source to have within you. And dear friend, someone here today that doesn't have the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, I exhort you to think about this. Loneliness. As a matter of fact, in hell, we read about the rich man that went to hell and he says these words, I am tormented in this flame. I am, not we are, I am. Talking about loneliness. It's eternal separation from God forever and ever and ever. That's a hard concept to to conceive of, being away from everybody and everything and being alone suffering. That's horrible. It's unimaginable. I can't process that. Nevertheless, the Scripture tells us that. That's what we're saved from. But praise God, when you're saved, you have a companion, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that will be with you. And it tells us in, in Hebrew 13, 5 and 6, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Never leave thee, nor forsake thee. For God is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I, God, saying that to us, I'll never leave you. We have friends that are going to forsake us. You may have had Christian friends that you were in church with at one time that you're no longer with. They went their own way, either back to the world or you separated from them for whatever reason, whatever reason. But God will never abandon us. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And God, the Lord wants our companionship. We don't understand that, but He really wants to be in communion with us. He wants our fellowship. His desire for us is that we commune with Him. And our desire should be, say, Lord, please, yes, fill me more. Bring more thoughts about Your preciousness to my heart that I might grow in grace and knowledge of You. A threefold cord is not easily broken. The Apostle Paul was in prison. And sad to say, he talks about various ones that have left me, and he was alone. He said these words in Second Timothy 4.16, at my first answer, and he obviously had to give a defense of himself before uh, maybe even the Roman emperor. At my first answer, no one stood with me. They all forsook me. All. The Luke's, the Timothy's, the Titus, or whoever they were, they left him alone. But then he goes on to say, Nevertheless, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might continue on. How about that? See, God's presence makes up for man's absence. I'm sure it hurt Paul's heart when they weren't with him. Paul also, remember when he was in Corinth, he... um he was being threatened, and it looked like things weren't going well, and he was thinking of leaving. And the Lord said to the Apostle Paul, that's in Acts 18 and verse 10, he says there that he, um, let me just get that exactly, Acts 18.10, i got to just get it started for a second. He says, uh, Paul said, the Lord says to Paul, Be not afraid, but speak. For I am with thee, 
And no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have yet much people in this city. Be not afraid, but speak. Why? Because I am with thee. When Jesus sent out the apostles after His resurrection, He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. How wonderful to have that unbreakable union with Christ who says to us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And to actually enjoy His presence. When I first was doing evangelism and I lived downtown, it was very easy to go and see hundreds of people all the time. I I, I must say, I did get discouraged at times thinking, boy, what an opportunity. So many of us Christians could be out doing gospel work and sharing the gospel. And and in my early years as a believer, I I sort of got a little bitter towards fellow believers thinking that, I, this was what God, God called us to. We should be evangelizing. Why are people home and, and, and mowing their lawns or whatever, you know? I mean, that's the kind of thinking that I had going on in my mind. But what gave me great comfort was verses like that. I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. I'm not going to leave you alone. And I, I used to say, uh, sometimes when I was preaching, I was all alone there and dozens of people, he'd say, they, they look at me, I say, I'm not alone here today. You might be worried about me or that I'm afraid or whatever. I'm not alone, but the Lord's with me. And I have that consolation from the Scriptures. Fear not, for I am with thee, and no one's going to set on thee to hurt thee, for I have yet much people in the city. Fear not, I am with thee. You know, it, it all fits in, doesn't it? This whole desire of companionship, of relationships, And what is our greatest relationship? Not religion, but relationship to the true and the living God. We have a permanent relationship. Now that relationship needs to be developed in such a way that there's intimacy involved in it. So when we call on God, praise the Lord, we can say, Abba, Father, Daddy, Man, oh man, you're bringing bringing it down to really a down-home level. God wants us to address him that uh, address him that way because that's the kind of relationship that he has entered into with us. And with Father's Day coming next week, we'll probably hear more about adoption, how God has no natural children, only adopted children, those who are born again. And if you're not a child of God today, if you don't have assurance and peace that your sins are forgiven, I beseech you to seek the Lord. Trust him with all your heart. You're not going to make it going through this life alone. You might think so. And this is why so many turn to artificial stimulants to try to give them that boost that they can't find in thinking that that's the substitute for companionship with people. And I'm not saying that all people are good companions. God forbid. He that uh, that is wise should walk with wise men, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. So we have to be selective in who we associate the closest with. Yet at the same time, we don't divorce ourselves from the children of the world. Paul says if we did so, we might as well just leave the world. No, I'm here to sit down with the with a drug addict, with an alcoholic, with, with a down and other, with a person that doesn't have a meaningfulness in their life. 
We can say to them, hey, I was just like you. I was a bondman in Egypt too. Remember, all of us, we were bondmen in Egypt at one time. We were enslaved to sin. But we met Jesus, praise the Lord. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. He's the bondage breaker. And then we come into a whole new spiritual world. Our eyes see things differently. We speak differently. We hear things differently. And we are changed. And praise the Lord for, for the Lord Jesus Christ assuring us that we are His children and we belong to Him and we are His prized possession. He's bought us with His precious blood and we are heaven-bound people and this earth is only well, just a passing through. So, two is better than one. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Praise the Lord that we have that desire and let's... Let's be sure that we cultivate that so that we do desire companionship. I love the sisters had a wonderful day yesterday getting together and the other, other gatherings at different homes and Bible studies and so on. Those things are critical. We just can't make it alone. So let's bow our heads and give God the glory. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious Son. Thank you for